Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food farming and the future of our environment here on WEAA 80.9 FM, your source for cool jazz and more, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. And I want to remind you, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. 45 years ago tomorrow, April 22nd, uh, an estimated 20 million people took the streets in the first ever Earth Day, uh, brought together by uh, then-Senator Gaylord Nelson. And that... Earth Day came out of the Vietnam War movement, came out of the radical movements of the 60s and exploded. He thinking could take the energy of young people and put it into the streets. Um, it was an amazing moment in our history. It was a moment when uh, two things that we were part of our conversation was the then head of the United Auto Workers, Walter Ruther, the man who put the cars on the road. This moment, at that moment was happening, all the cities were deeply polluted. People could hardly breathe in their neighborhoods. The Cayuga River caught on fire in Ohio. There was a gigantic oil spill and a gasoline explosion off the coast of California. These things all kind of happened at that moment and pushed people toward these environmental issues. But it was Walter Ruther, who was head of the UAW at that moment, uh, who got up and said, we have to do something radically different. This is the man, auto workers president. I keep saying that because what he said was, we have to stop building all these cars and start building mass transit for America to help get rid of the pollution. And so this is a kind of far-thinking human being at that moment. And a lot of African-American leaders were torn about this movement because some saying we can't distract from the struggle around racism and poverty in America. Others saying in that movement, no, this can help build the movement and make it broader completely. So a lot happened on that day around Earth Day 45 years ago. And we're going to wrestle with what happened then and what it means for now and where it could be taking us. We are joined here in studio by Sasha Jones, who is food justice consultant, consultant pardon me, for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manager of the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights. Good to see you once again, Sasha, as always. The Reverend Merrick Morris is with us, uh, ordained minister, writer, community activist, teacher, one of the first African-Americans ordained within the old Catholic movement in Baltimore. Good, good morning. Good back, Merrick. Fred Tutman joins us by phone, Patuxent Riverkeeper. Always good to have him with us. Fred, great to have you here. Great. Thanks. And Gerald Weingrad with us, who was a, is attorney, a young professor at the University of School of Public Policy, where he started a graduate course in Chesapeake Bay Restri- Restoration since 1988. But he was known when he was in the Maryland State Senate as the conscience of the environment in the state Senate and has never lost uh, his, um, uh, his, uh, his nature to fight for the environment and for environmental justice. Uh, and there's a, people call him sometimes, Gerald, take no prisoners, Weingrad. He's with us as well. And you all can join us here, 410-319-8888. Uh, you can uh, log on to our Facebook pages, and you can email us at, at uh, talk at org. But, Jerry, let me start very quickly with you. You were there in 1970. You almost were part of this movement. We were waylaid by the Vietnam War and the draft. But tell us about that moment. Well, I was a young cub just out of University of Maryland Law School working for the National Wildlife Federation in Washington, D.C., and I was sent with a task to go to Gaylord Nelson's meeting, Senator Nelson's in the, cap- in the Senate, and we sat kind of in folding chairs with a group of environmental folks and leaders and people from different groups and had a briefing. I think it was around February, early February, uh, 1970 about this Earth Day, and I thought, well, it sounds like a good idea. I don't know how they're going to do this nationwide, and it was this um, bright, shiny idea, and who had any clue what it would blossom into, but unfortunately, or fortunately, I was commissioned in the United States Navy JAG Corps. I was going to be drafted, and I was an attorney, and I loved my job in D.C., but I had a duty, and so I was in Newport, Rhode Island, um, on April twenty second, nineteen seventy. <laughs> so I, I, let me let me just talk about the significance of that moment. I mean, the United States was in an environmental crisis, and so laws were passed around air pollution and other and and, and water quality. They were actually pushed through the Nixon administration, which he balked at at first, but he was forced to do it. And and the Democratic Congress pushed these certain things, and it it, it did make in many ways our country a little healthier environmentally than other parts of the world. When you visit other parts of the world, you can feel it and see it. But we're a long way from health 
and the environment. So I wonder, as let me let me start with the, the the younger people in this room first in this conversation. That would be Sasha Jones, and, and just because I'm I'm curious, because you, as, as a younger person, you came to this, and you can tell us how this whole world of the environment and farming and health that you've come into. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not around in 1970. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> we're not even an inkling in somebody's eye in 1970, not at right? All. My parents were yet children and hadn't met yet. <laughs> so, talk a bit about what that Earth Day means to you from 45 years ago and how, you, how it relates to your world today, especially in communities like Park Heights. That's an interesting question. I, um, I came to in the environmental movement having the privilege of traveling abroad and seeing just the connectedness in terms of environment. Um, that we all share, you know, in the world. So I went to Nicaragua, and um, that was my first trip abroad. I was 17, and I got there, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You know, it's lush, it's great, you know, all this farmland and all these beautiful people, and found out that their largest export was plastic bags at the time, and they were the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So there was a real disconnect between their land resources um, and their political power and access, you know, and that that was a whole different thing. But coming up... um, kind of civically engaged here in Baltimore, I I went in with that lens of, you know, like, how can we change things? How can this be great? Um, So fast forward to now in Earth Day, I was completely changed by that trip. And it made me want to be an active worker on the ground to actually start connecting people to the resources they already have so that they can, you know, be invested in the environment and to benefit from the environment. You know, we were able to hike the Andes on that trip. And, you know, it was glorious. You know, you see coffee trees, you know, just kind of growing, and um, all types of trees and uh, sugarcane and all that. And that changed for me. So when I came back, I immediately wanted to recreate that experience. But in recreating that experience, I feel like I don't have time to celebrate Earth Day, <laughs> you know. So so for me, um, because I work, um, you know, managing the garden and keeping, you know, our food programs um, going and, you know, organizing our CSA, which we are an open enrollment, shameless plug. But um, in, in organizing that and just maintaining the work and being a worker in the movement, I don't necessarily take time out to say oh this is earth day and Mm -hmm. i have to commemorate earth day and you know like the history hasn't even been kind of shared with me so in reading you know the materials for the show today i learned a lot and um and so i think there's a real disconnect between the history and where earth day started and the momentum and the feeling on the ground and i love that you connected it to just coming out of civil rights era just coming out of or still being in the midst of it really you know just you know being in the midst of vietnam and all of the all this groundswell you know that has not, I don't think it's trickled down to the generations for us to say, wow, this is not just, you know, let me buy a reusable shopping bag and go to the farmer's market today or this weekend. But really, this was a movement that brought people from all walks of life together to bring some lasting change, both on the ground and at the policy level. And so I think that has been lost throughout the generations. Um, and I, I appreciate this conversation we're having. So, and so, Fred uh, Tutman, I mean, just, you know, as a, as a, as a riverkeeper, um, and as someone battling for the environment, but also as someone who's really active in the black world and community around these issues, um, I'm curious where this where this takes us now, 45 years later, from your perspective. I mean, we saw the, the movement, this, this movement, as I said earlier, as Sasha just reiterated, was born out of the movements of the 1960s, the environmental movement was. Um, and, and, and so, and, but now we're here 45 years later, so, I mean, your analysis as well about to where, where this takes us, because you live and see it every day, as does Joe Weingrad, in the disastrous conditions that the waters around us are. Well, it's a funny contrast, because I think of the birth of the environmental movement uh, as a cognizable mass movement occurring in the 70s, as the civil rights movement was basically kind of declining from its heyday in the 60s. And I got involved with environmentalism because I thought of it as an extension of civil rights. I think of pollution and polluting as economic crimes that have kind of social economic implications. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are some 40-some years later when you know the environmental movement is still struggling, I think, to try and find its connectivity to basic human rights causes. I think there's a little bit of fuzziness about that sometimes within the mass environmental movement about whether you know civil rights sentiments are even relevant to it. They ought to be. There's no question in my mind that they are. But I think we're a new movement. I think that's really key. We're a relatively new movement. Forty years is not a lot of time for us to kind of find our legs. But we're still struggling to figure out exactly who we are as a big movement. And, again, what our connection is to these great 
you know, powerful causes that are so inspirational and so powerful that really should be uniting people. And we could do a much better job, I think, of uniting people around environmental issues. Um, I have to give a shout-out to Mr. Tubman. I met him last, I think it was last year or two years ago um, in Annapolis. And uh, we were sitting in a hearing or some type of forum, and my, I remember him saying to me that there's a lot of racism in this movement. Mm-hmm. Then It's not going to be overt. Please keep your eyes open. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he said that, I, I had my antenna up and my spidey sense uh, uh, really trained on what I could bring back to my community. And what I realized was that he was absolutely right because oftentimes when the rubber meets the road in places of power, um, the voices of those most affected by environmental blight mm-hmm. and, um, and environmental destruction are unfortunately not represented in these halls. So I think that one of the challenges that the movement faces is what does it look like when the people most affected by the blight, by the environmental degradation, are not the ones in the halls of power? They are not, and then the the movement itself. How can it grow? when the people who are leading the movement don't look like the people that are actually affected? And, and what does it look like when the demographics, when we know that the col- that people of color are growing demographically, but the movement does not re- represent that growth? And what does that look like politically? Does that look like if the movement does not reach out and actively recruit and train leadership that looks like the people who are affected, does that mean that it, the movement will be on the wane. So we need to figure out, as Mr. Tubman says, what, how to connect the dots. Because I've got kids here in Baltimore that are suffering from asthma. Whole families, and we know air quality is mm-hmm. poor, but where are their voices? Who is representing them in the halls of Annapolis when we're calling for clean air legislation? It can't just be me and somebody else. It has to be other people, other voices. And I would also like to see uh, the church on mass get involved because there are churches that are getting involved, but I'm talking about specifically churches that are that are in communities of color that are seeing these things and can really be vectors of communication for communities for them to get involved. Jerry, I, I, I know you've been hearing everything people have been saying, and, and you've been around the environmental movement a long time, and we've had a lot of programs here just about the changes in that movement, the, how it's getting younger, and also how many more um, people from black and brown communities in this country are kind of taking hold of leadership and where you see us now and where you see us going. Well, one of the early criticisms of the environmental community is still relevant today, that it's a largely white movement, white employees by the vast majority and a much lower percentage than the population of minorities as a whole. And that still holds true. One of the readings that you all sent out um, was exactly on that point, and it's very still disturbing. I made a, made an effort with former Senator Larry Young, who was a delegate with me when I started in the General Assembly in 1979, and we tried to do an exchange thing where I'd come to Baltimore and talk about environmentalism with his people because, just as one of the other speakers said, uh, disproportionately minorities are affected by urban blight and by uh, hazardous waste and landfills and dumps it doesn't happen around the wealthy and the affluent and it doesn't the air pollution is worse in the urban areas where folks suffer from asthma as just was mentioned one of the students so i see that was one of the real real bad um, developments that's occurred that we have not advanced minorities in positions of leaderships and in the environmental community whether it's in the grant makers the, the mainstream environmental groups or even in the environmental agencies at the state and federal level. Well, let, me, let me tackle a couple of issues here and see where you all think we are in terms of, 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 of 2015, 45 years uh, after that time. Um, and, uh, um, and I was thinking about that because that's the, that's the year that my, my first daughter was born, was in 1970. Oh. <laughs> and so um, a long time ago. And... and, and, and um, and, and where we are now, and I, I, let me just take one issue here, and a couple of issues. Let's just talk about Maryland for a moment, the, 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 the four of us, the four of you, and talk about where we are. And let me talk about an issue that may not be directly related to what we just talked about in some levels, but I think affects us all, which is I, always, I have always called 
the people, the paving contractors of Maryland and the developers, um, the the kind of defense contractors like they are on Capitol Hill, they have, the, the power they hold here to on the local level to have zoning the way they want to, to build whatever they want to, uh, and and to, and to, and to change nature society. Whether it's coming into Park Heights and moving people out and moving people with money in to take over those houses, mm-hmm. or whether it's tearing down the forest to build new land every time they want to expand out. And the question is that that, that to me, and I'll let you start in this, Jerry. We'll go around the room. Because that, that, that to me is kind of a fundamental question on how you begin to control what happens around us and, and, and how we develop community, but also how you don't destroy the environment in the process. And I remember, Jerry, once you said in the show uh, years back when you hear, I remember one day you said, um, we should not allow another house to be built or another tree to be cut down or something similar to that. Well, the way the process is skewed in this state is so distortive of what needs to be done. We are zapping the energy and strength of our existing people and infrastructure in urban areas like Baltimore City. But even more strikingly, when I uh, was teaching my graduate course on the Chesapeake Bay, is when I put the demographic together, uh, it is really appalling what's happening in our state. And that is that it isn't just Baltimore City, but when I looked at the census data, uh, 161 reported municipalities in the in the state. Uh, almost 40 percent of those were losing population, and it didn't make any difference whether it was Western Maryland or the Eastern Shore or Southern Maryland. When you looked at small towns and other municipalities, they were actually losing population or gaining much less than the county or the state as a whole. And that's because all of our policies support development wherever it goes, not just because of the lobbying power of the industry, but because that's the way the system works. Any growth is good, and it zaps. Baltimore County sucks out big corporations, small corporations and businesses, and also jobs out of Baltimore City. So does Anne Arundel. So does uh, Howard County, Harford County, all the surrounding counties. People are moving. My relatives, where I grew up uh, when I was very young in, in East Baltimore, they live in Harford County. They live in Baltimore County. They're out of the city. And so we're bleeding our cities of the people and the vitality. We're closing libraries and police stations and fire stations and schools in Baltimore City while we're spending state and local money to build the same schools in Baltimore County and Harford County and Anne Arundel County and Howard County. It is crazy. And so until we change that dynamic and revitalize our urban areas, which not only protects the environment, it ensures the lifeblood of our cities, and then we don't have the crumbling infrastructure and the high tax rate in Baltimore City. Baltimore City, again, after two years of bumps, where for the first time in decades they actually had small increases in population, the decline is occurring again out of our city. So that's one of the most foremost problems that we have. And I want to interject one other quick thing. Okay. When you look at Earth Day, start to realize this. When that first Earth Day happened, we in the, in the world had a, a, a population of 3.7 billion people in 1970. We now have almost double that. We have uh, 7.3 billion people on Earth. And in Maryland, it's similar. It's more than d- doubled since that period of time, and we're dealing with a lot more people, and the way they move is much more uh, land consumptive in the way they develop land, and they don't want to live in urban centers generally where our urban populations have been bleeding population. For the most part, Washington, D.C. has reversed that. So we're dealing with a lot more people, and the state just seems to be oblivious. Smart growth doesn't work. The plan Maryland was actually a farce. It really didn't change anything. And so we, we were faced with that dilemma with a suffering population as well as with incredible tax consequences. Fred, why don't you jump in on that? Gosh, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't add a great deal to that at all, to be honest with you. I mean, I agree, I agree with Jerry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, and, but, to, 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 but to put that a little further, I mean, I think that that's part of what we're facing here is we don't, you know, whether it's we, – we, we talk about climate change all the time, and climate change is a really huge issue for us to face in this world and, this, and, and the world around us. But, but part of what I remember pushed the anti-pollution movement around the environment 
in the early 70s was health, was what was happening to us because what we breathe in, mm-hmm. what we take into our bodies, what we, the, the, the chemicals that lace our food that's in everything we eat, uh, and all that, Sasha, are the kind of things that I think motivate in another, in a different way are motivating younger people, your generation a little older, into the movement because mm-hmm. they're seeing, it's not, you can't see it, you can't see the smog as literally as you used to be able to see right. it. But you can feel it and you can see what happens in our diseases and what happens in our communities. And that's part of what I think is pushing people now. Right. I would I would definitely agree with you. We are not as motivated by holes in the ozone layer and, you know, um, car, um, excuse me, like uranium and plutonium. Like we're not interested in those things anymore. In the large aspect of it, my generation is definitely concerned with, you know, viability. Do we have the opportunity to thrive, you know, and our ambient quality is at a point where, you know, it still trumps those of, you know, the rest of the world. But there, in terms of environment, I did want to point out that both environment and climate both have these social connotations to them you know the environment can be the ambient quality the water air all of that but can also be the um the human capital the the dynamics that are in the community how a community works and that also is the environment that's the climate of the community so in the environmental movement you know you you spoke slightly of displacement and um and how the environmental movement has kind of changed and shifted. And so in Park Heights, I was just thinking about my community. You know, this first, the first Earth Day was in 1970. You know, that's the around the same time that Park Heights started to get its first African-American, you know, um, citizens. And the 40 years or 45 years from then to now, the community has completely gone downhill. And so in talking about the environmental movement for people of my generation, we're concerned about what was not included when this conversation started. And for me, a lot of, you know, it started um, thinking about, you know, clean water, clean air, clean waterways, you know, that type of thing, and holding big business accountable, which we still have a long way to go. But now we're seeing these negative um, offsets or negative externalities of even the environmental movement. Um, And it's with, you know, when we have the environmental movement without the lens of racial equity or without the lens of economic equity and how the the environment affects everyone differently, even though it affects us all, you know, you get these uneven um, changes or you get, are the people who are leading the movement, like you were saying, Merrick, the people who are leading the movement completely out of touch with the folks on the ground either doing the work or the folks on the ground who are affected by these policies. And so I'm finding that young people are more motivated by that, being on the ground and doing the work. You know, and I've had the privilege of working at policy organizations. I've had the privilege of working at some of the larger um, environmental organizations that have been around since the 40s and 50s. Um, and they are always focused about the animals and the water. And, you know, and for young people like myself, especially people of color, we're most concerned about is there going to be a way for us to eat? Like, you know, is the water going to be equitably distributed? Is it going to be privatized, you know, when it gets, becomes too scarce? Like those type of economic, social equity, social justice um, thoughts, and you know, of the environmental movement. We have to take a quick break here. We're going to come yeah. right back from this break. I, I want to pick up on Sasha's point and have all of you jump in because I, I will posit here on the way the break that there is a direct connection between the climate change in our world and, how, and, and what's happening to destroy our Earth via climate change, what's happening to our water, to our air, the extension and power of the oil industry, and what happens in the poorest communities in our, in our, in our country that are directly affected by this. The question is, is there a way to bring all those together? Mm-hmm. If you take a quick break, we're hearing the voice of the wonderful Nina Simone. Don't let me be misunderstood. She passed away on this day. In 2003, we'll be right back. Please don't let me be misunderstood. You know, sometimes, baby, I'm so. About a lucky man who made the grave. 
Welcome back, and that's Day in the Life by the Beatles from my album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which finished recording on this day in 1967, just a little bit before Earth Day itself. And we're here with Sasha Jones, Cheryl Weingrad, Merrick Moyes, and Fred Tupton to talk about the 45th anniversary of Earth Day. On the way back to this conversation, I'll, I'll, I'll announce that later, so I'm going to jump right into this, not to lose momentum. Uh, but so let me pick up where we left off, and let me go to Fred and Jerry, then over to and then over, uh, or, or back into the studio here with Merrick and I, and because Fred, there's a connection here. We we the, the, you know you've said on the show before what Sasha just said about you know the waters and the animals not directly kind of feeling and being directly related to what people are struggling with who are facing environmental challenges in our poorest communities. Uh, on the other hand. That that global that that climate change and what happens to our rivers, what happens to the earth, what happens to uh, the the uh, the animals on our planet, um, directly affects all of us. I mean, it's all, it's all connected. So, so where do we take all that? So the connection is the underlying economic system, which incidentally is capitalism, which is hard to tee up because if you start criticizing capitalism. People think you're arguing for something else like socialism, which actually isn't the case for me. But what I am pointing out is that, you know, apartheid and slavery, which were capitalist institutions, and a lot of these environmental problems we're fighting are also kind of captive to that same economic system. I think we have to confront that a lot of the economic stuff that we do in this culture is inhospitable to protecting the planet. It's almost impossible to overhaul the pollution problem unless we also overhaul the economic system that sustains it. Um, and I think that environmental organizations sometimes have a very difficult filter mm-hmm. trying to sort that out, because you have to buy something more often than not to participate in a lot of these organizations. Right? People with money have an easier time functioning within the strictures of the existing uh, and big-scale environmental movement because they have the cost of admission. They can buy the membership and the T-shirts and the special gear and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and the movement caters to large donors. You know, which, again, kind of reinforces the idea that this is a money system that we're dealing with as much as the movement's reluctant to admit it. So that's what they have in common. That's what climate change has. It's an artifact of the economic system. Fred, I'm glad you raised that issue. Let's wrestle with that for a moment. It's not an easy one to wrestle with. Let's do that. And then, Joe let me bring you into this. Then we'll come back to the studio here with our guests here. Because in many ways, I was thinking about that. You know, the United States consumes a huge amount of the world's resources. Mm-hmm. Um, 25% from some of the studies I've read that people say all the time that number. But that, that if we were serious about tackling the, the issues of the environment, of, of, uh, of thinking about what Walter Luther said in 1970, we should stop getting in our cars and start thinking about building a mass transit, uh, mass transit in this country, which we're not going to do for the same private reasons that, that I think Fred was outlining, um, that we'd have to have a very different world if we really did that, if we really were serious about tackling the things that face us, because it is motivated by the profit. It is motivated by uh, wanting to dig in the ground and get as much oil for as much money as humanly possible and gas, mm-hmm. not thinking about solar or nuclear or whatever people will believe should be the alternative. Mm-hmm. So you know what I'm saying? So it's, I think Fred has hit upon something. Jerry? Well, the problem, as Fred detailed, is systemic. The first issue really is is on global warming the president has made that a priority i mean he's been more than outspoken he's been criticized uh, bitterly by the republican leadership and they are climate deniers they not only don't want to move on climate change they don't believe that climate change at least they say is caused by human activities and those are key leaders in the Senate, the United States Senate, and in the United States Congress. So you have that barrier. In addition, the president is a pragmatist, and he also has a policy of all of the above. There has been more oil and gas extraction. We're at record levels, including on public lands under the control of the president as the chief executive. The fracking thing is under the president, mm-hmm. and he is an all of the above, natural gas, coal, oil, solar, wind, energy conservation, and he's done a lot on fuel economy, on cars and all. So that's one issue, what he's trying to do with a Congress that is going to do nothing at all other than inhibit his actions by executive orders and by administrative actions and regulations to undo that. At the root of that is something that the bright young ladies there have mentioned, and that is that people on the streets, 
and, and particularly urban dwellers and, and, and folks that are in minority communities or lower-income communities, whether they're minorities or not, they're not relating to polar bears, you know, being coming extinct because of global warming or walruses or other creatures affected. They're worried about food on the table and jobs and income and clean air and clean water. They want that, too. So you have to couch it right. But really, at the Achilles heel of all of this is why 45 years after the first Earth Day and under President Nixon, the passage of such landmark legislation as the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, NEPA, the Basic Environmental Policy Act, all of these major pieces of legislation that occurred under Republican President Democratic Congress. And this Congress is broken. We all know that. It doesn't work. And the key element here, though, is what is the counterforce? And that is the environmental community has not matured to be an effective, overwhelmingly crucial political entity in the United States of America and our democracy. With the, the decisions by the Supreme Court on no limits on these PACs, the, the environmentalists have even been shuttered to a relative obscure corner of political effectiveness. Look at the last election. Just look at the Congress and its makeup with climate deniers getting elected. And, and the same in the state of Maryland. Look at the election. Did the governor, Governor Hogan, was an environment really any major force in that election? Somebody that disavowed um, cleaning up farm pollution from chicken manure and, and his positions on the environment and, this, and, and pushing back on the clean air provisions that the O'Malley administration put at the last end it would affect a lot of people's health in urban areas. So my bottom line point is, is that one of the readings that you sent us um, was that they, the comment was environmentalists were able to maintain the Earth Week and the Earth Day and all of that environmental momentum during the Ford and Carter administrations after Nixon, but came up, quote, against a brick wall once Reagan took office, forcing the movement back on the defensive where it has largely remained ever since. Now, Reagan went out in January of 1989, so we're talking, you know, 26 years ago, and we're still on the defensive. And I would posture that unless the environmental community becomes more inclusive and has many, many more minorities involved and broadens the tent and gets wiser to become an effective environmental NRA, the National Rifle Association, we are going to continue to struggle to make any progress, whether it's cleaning up a local creek or stream or the Chesapeake Bay, or whether it's to tackle in aggressive fashion global warming. The environmental community simply has not matured into an effective environmental political force in this country. And on the tail that I turned to Merrick Moyes here, there was an email that just came in from CW. CW wrote in uh, this email. Uh, she'll be younger, saying, I worked in the environmental movement field for two years. I've noticed a few things. One, the large environmental groups do not hire black people. Two, the large environmental groups support a lot of policies that actually harm poor urban areas. Three, the programming isn't usually geared towards by communities. I love talking about coal in West Virginia, but how do we connect that with Park Heights, which is one thing mm -hmm. Sasha was talking about. Merrick? Amen, CW, and everybody else who has spoken. <laughs> um, I have to um, really say that um, the same spirit that allowed the importation and exploitation of Africans and African bodies to build this hemisphere is the same spirit that allows for the exploitation of the earth. They are inextricably connected, and they just have morphed over the centuries. That being said, I think that uh, Mr. Tutman uh, was absolutely right. We can't consume our way out of climate change mm -hmm. and environmental exploitation. Um, that is the same spirit that got us here. So, um, and part of the, pro the part of the challenge is um, how do we um, broaden the tent as the, the last person said? How do we broaden the tent? And I think that one of the things that we really need to talk about is um, the racism within the movement mm -hmm. and correcting that lens. So that means that people and organizations have to do a deep self-check. And I don't know if they are ready to do that. But what I think is very interesting is that 
without doing that, they cannot gather the political um, ganas. They cannot carry the political weight that is absolutely necessary mm -hmm. to carry the um, agenda of the movement forward. They you you cannot do it without everybody together. And I think that one of the things that we need to start thinking about, as CW said, was how do we create policy that is in accord with the spirit of the people? And we've yet to do that. Um, we actually worked together, C Young, CW and I, and it was very interesting because we were pushing this bill called the, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, basically to increase the amount of clean energy used in, Mar in Maryland. And that's great, but when we were going out in black communities, people were like, well, can y'all help me pay my light bill? Mm -hmm. Like, that was a real situation. Mm -hmm. And so then we have to come back around to the energy costs and how people are like, well, should I buy these groceries or maybe I can have my groceries to um, actually, like, pay this light bill, which is extraordinary. How do I pay this water bill? Wow, they're about to shut my water off. And we know that water is a human right. And so how do we balance all these things? Because on the ground in urban areas, that is what environmental Lism looks like. Mm -hmm. And we need to start talking about the issues that directly affect the people. And if we don't, we will lose. And it has grave political consequences and it has grave consequences for the planet. And uh, kudos, <laughs> you know. Um, exactly. That's exactly it, you know. And um, in order to be an effective political organization, you have to have community buy in. Whatever your identified community is, those people have to know what you're about, and they are they have to be in a position to flock toward you. And what I found in the environmental movement, I've worked at majority white environmental organizations, huge policy organizations that are actively on the ground. They're meeting with the president. They're meeting with this congressman. They're meeting with that congressman. And I'm in your office, and I feel uncomfortable because our cultures don't mix. And so there, you know, there's just a there is a real need to address that from the policy-based level in those organizations. At the same time, is climate change the only thing that we need to be focused on? Because if we are putting all of this energy, effort, and resources into convincing people who don't believe in climate change that it's real, then how about all of the... Again, negative externalities, as we're talking of the capitalistic system, you know, all of those negative externalities of not addressing j just whatever, asthma, you know, or urban blight. You can't, going back to the water bill situation, our water bills here in Baltimore are higher because it's not, there aren't enough people to stretch the bill across. So, and that is caused by urban blight. You know, it's like we have houses like, you know, in park heights, you know, that have trees growing in them, you know, that are falling down. And so what type of financial responsibility does that create for the community, for the city, for the homeowner, for those to be allowed to go into decay? And so, you know, just like when we in the health, in the health field, when we talk about social determinants of health, what are the social determinants of environmentalism? You know, like there are clear factors that you have to address before you can even have the privilege to say I'm an environmentalist, you know. <laughs> and we're about out of time, so I wanted to get some final thoughts about where do you both think we go from here, uh, starting with Gerald Weingrad and, and, and close out with Fred Tupp and your final thoughts on where we do go from here on this 45th anniversary and what, 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 what your thoughts about where we go next. Jerry? Jerry? Hello? Hi, Jerry. I, so I, I'm just a final, final closing comments from you and, and Fred. You're right. Back in 2004, two young gentlemen uh, in their 30s wrote a very thoughtful but uh, uh, piercing piece, Is Environmentalism Dead?, saying that the current status of environmentalism with the major national environmental groups was not working and needed a total revamping. And I agree with that. I think we need more groups coming together and working together. Clearly, we need to expand our minority outreach and, and be much more inclusive and work with labor and other entities that will, will be the only way we succeed. So I am looking more at a systemic change. Science is great, and you can preach science. One of the first little idioms I learned in the General Assembly is don't confuse me with the facts. Environmentalists believe they're right. They believe everybody thinks like they do, and they don't. And so what we need to do is to reorganize our environmental organizations to dare them to look at how stasis has set in and how this, we're not working since President Reagan successfully to achieve the longer-term goals, and that means getting much more involved in po the political realm, and it means also being an effective entity 
where politicians listen. The final point is, is in this last year gubernatorial election, nor in the presidential elections, is the environment really even an issue. And that is the saddest part of Earth Day 45 years later when I look at this, that when you do the polling at the state level, the environment doesn't even rattle. I talked to a key candidate for governor, trust me, and the candidate said, look, I've done the polls and I see, you know, the environment is down there, one of the lowest ranked, you know, initiatives that people care about. And it's the same at the national level. Elections aren't being determined about people's environmental positions. And that has to change or we can't change the dynamic in America of protecting our air, water, land and our people qualities. Fred Tutman. So the editorial that Gerald just pointed out, there's a brilliant and scathing rebuttal to it written by a, a, a black African-American environmentalist named Ludovic Blaine, and it's called Ain't I an Environmentalist, in which he decries the lack of recognition for grassroots work being done in the trenches by people of color all over the globe. Mm. And one of the paradoxes of the green economy is we have created the expectation that you can get paid being green. And sadly, what I'm finding after 30-some years of activism is that the nature of work that tends to get you paid doing green stuff is really not the stuff that speaks truth to power, typically. Mm -hmm. And it's rarely the stuff that really needs to be done that will probably never really be funded. Right. The, yeah. the difference between the environmental movement and the civil rights movement is that no one had the expectation in the civil rights movement that they were going to get a paycheck at, at the end of it. Right. But the environmental movement in this green economy needs to redirect its attention on that fundamental work that is counter-establishment. It actually fundamentally seeks almost revolutionary change in how we earn money, how we eat, how we manage our waste across the board. It's not just about picking up the trash, and it's not just about saying the right stuff so that we all get like a, you know, a green T-shirt or a, you know, a squeeze <laughs> bottle at the end of it. And I'm being flipped, but I mean... No, that's no, no, no. Kind of right. So that's the kind of inclusive movement that we need to work on. We're not going to muster much change at all if we don't have a fully inclusive and diverse movement. And grassroots movements are already diverse. You yeah. can hire diversity and you can fire it. The grassroots movements don't have that problem. They're already diverse. Fred Tubman, production review keeper. Gerald Weingrad, former state senator and environmental activist. Sasha Jones, Park Heights activist and who runs the Park Heights farm. And Reverend Merrick Moyes, thank you four for being here with us for this portion of the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much for your th- insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So long. We're going to take a very brief break. Don't go away. We're coming right back. We're going to talk about what happened or did not happen in the state legislative season when it came to the environment and farms. And you're listening to right now, Clara Ward of the Ward Singers. We're going to stay in 1924. Surely God is able by the war singers. They changed the nature of gospel singing in America in, in ways that allowed women to have their voice. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, reminding you to join us this Thursday at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church as the Mark Steiner Show and Baltimore Food and Faith Project of the Center for a Livable Future present the film Homecoming, which is a history of African-American farmers and a requiem for a way of life that almost disappeared but is being reborn. After the film, I'll moderate a discussion with Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, Alea Frazier, Dwayne Couser, and Lavette Blue. Uh, that's Thursday, this Thursday evening, a couple nights from now, 7 p.m., at the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, 430 East Belvedere Avenue. More information, you can write to Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, at steinershow.org, or call 443-804-1252. But join us here uh, Thursday night. Now we are joined by Brian Sears, government reporter for The Daily Record. Good to have you with us, Brian. Thanks, Mark. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm very well. So let's quickly go through what, what happened in this legislative session when it, comes, when it came to the environment and farming. What are the things that stand out to your mind the most of things that didn't happen and did happen? 
Well, a couple of quick hits, and then you can ask me about whichever one you like. Sure, um, sure. I, I think you know, first you've got to talk about um, what the legislature did in terms of revising the, uh, the stormwater management fee. Also, uh, the fact that they were able to come to an agreement um, on phosphorus management tool regulations. I think those are probably the two, the two big ones. Um, also, to talk a little bit about the, uh, the fracking moratorium. And uh, what didn't happen, um, I think, primarily would be the, uh, the, the fracking liability bill that Senator Bobby Zirkin had. What was that? <clears throat> Excuse me. There was a, um, a bill that, uh, that Senator Zirkin had in that would have increased the uh, – would have set liability standards for companies that were seeking to come in and, and uh, use hydraulic fracturing in western Maryland. Um, it – it made it managed to make it through to the Senate, got to the House where it got kind of bottled up in committee. Um, uh, that bill was kind of a, uh, I think, was probably going to be a little bit of a tough sell. But um, the, the senator has always been um, opposed to fracking, and it was something that he hoped would uh, uh, would be a conversation starter. I think a lot of people saw it on both sides as something that would permanently ban fracking without actually passing a, uh, a bill that would ban fracking in Maryland. So I, I was thinking about what one of our guests said earlier, former state senator Jerry Weingrad, who was on the program, and um, and talking about how the environmental movement uh, in the state of Maryland has really much less political power than it used to, and people thinking in terms of legislation that really does anything to kind of uh, curb the kind of runoff and pollution that happens in the Bay, whether it's stormwater or whether it's paving and building and zoning and the rest, uh, and and how he may be true about that. I'm curious, just your your, your observations as someone who watches Annapolis um, in that particular issue, just the, the kind of, you know, when you look at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation coming out with a, a D report card for the state of the Bay. Um, but it seems to make yeah. no little difference politically or legislatively. You know, I don't know that it, I don't know that it makes little difference. I mean, it certainly is something that is, that is talked about. Um, I believe that, uh, that there, you know, environmental bills can, uh, you know, can be a tough sell down here. Um, but then again, you look at you look at the compromise that came about from, um, between the administration and the legislature and the environmental community on the phosphorus management tool regulations. Um, I, I mean, I think you know, anytime you can get the environmental community to go from an oppose on what uh, Governor Larry Hogan wanted to do to a neutral non-position stance, I mean, that's a fairly significant move considering where the two sides were. Um, when the governor was sworn in, so I mean, I do think that the, I, I do think that they um, they are heard down here. They're probably heard by and large by by some legislators more than others. But uh, I, I don't know that I would say that that, that their voice goes completely uh, completely without being heard. Uh, so maybe not being all completely not not being heard, but I, you know, I, I look at the phosphorus management tool and that whole debate. We've covered that in the last several years. We've been covering that when Martin O'Malley was governor. We covered that and continue to cover it. Um, on this particular segment of the Mark Steiner Show soundbites. But even there, you know, it seemed like years ago there was this, there was a, um, a compromise met when the commission was called by O'Malley when everybody was at the table, environmentalists, farmers, others, and all of a sudden that was nixed uh, in some kind of battle between O'Malley and, and, uh, and the people who owned the chickens, and then, and then it went back to uh, this legislature. I mean, so there was a compromise but it, 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 there was an idea about how to do it. Then it was kind of torn asunder, and now they had to compromise all over again. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. Um, but, it, I mean, it looks like in this case, um, you know, this, this compromise is going to be the one that stands. I don't think any of us have a sense that, that this is going to be torn asunder like previous versions. So what do you think will come out of this? Come out of this whole this whole compromise and where it's going to go. What do you think it's going to under this administration and this and you know? But where do you think it's going to go? Well, I mean, I think the intent here is to now is to now put forth regulations that are going to incorporate uh, this, this compromise. I mean, look, the, the fallback position on this is, is if the governor um, decides for some reason to go a different direction. Um, and, and not put in sort of the regulations that everybody is expecting. Um, the legislature is probably going to come back with its own with its own bill. I mean, that was one of the things that uh, I think probably brought all the sides to the table was the difference between you know, the governor trying to pr- you know, promulgate regulations and the legislature saying, you know what, we're we're going to look at this as as legislation as a legislative package. Um, and that got both that got both sides talking. So I mean, there's always that hammer there that the legislature could come back later if they're unhappy. Now that that is part of the dynamic, isn't it? I mean, I, when you watch what happened here in the state legislature, just run these environmental issues and more, 
um, between the Democratic, the Democratic Party-controlled House and Senate and the governor's mansion in Hogan's Republican hands, you, you watch this kind of coming to an end that was not really an end. And you can see how it may be setting up for this kind of battle coming up for the next three years. Yeah, I th- look, I think that definitely what we saw was the possibility here that we could have we could have three years of conflict. Um, the, the governor has gotten has had more of a relationship with the Senate right now than he does with the House. That is, in a lot of ways, where you saw the con- you know the conflicts bubbling up. And so um, I, I think if there isn't sort of an attempt to, to build a relationship between the, the House and the governor, um, we, we could probably see repeats of, of some of the things that we saw this year. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the, the, the deeper issues about the, the restoration of Chesapeake Bay or the whole phosphorus and nutrient question when it comes to chickens in the bay and, and, and uh, the stormwater management fee, people call the rain tax, are much thornier issues to deal with than fracking because fracking is really economically very small in this in this state um, and wouldn't have the kind of and you already had you saw the businesses in West Maryland going no we don't want it because it'll affect our businesses negatively especially the tourist industry but those other three issues are really much stickier and and more difficult to come to grips with. That's probably true. Um, I mean, but look, it, it's why you say fracking is, is sort of statistically small within the state. Yeah, uh, there are legislators in Western Maryland who would tell you that this is this is a very would be a very important industry to them, where you know they have some of the highest unemployment rates in the state, and this could mean jobs and and some some economic prosperity for them, and so you know they would like to find the balance where they could be allowed to do this. Once again, Brian Sears, government reporter for The Daily Record, has joined us. Brian, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you for all the work you do down there. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern and day and history producer is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. On the way out of here, we're hearing Cinnamon by Nina Simone, who passed away on this day in 2003. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community and your source for cool jazz and more, and WSTL 90.7 FM, the Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. What's the matter with you, Rock? Don't you see I'm...